This morning our text is from Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. This is following the the uh, exchange that Jesus had with the rich young man in which Jesus told him finally what he needed to do to be a disciple. And what he told the rich young man is he had to give up all of his money and follow him, follow Jesus, give all his money to the poor. And after the rich young man went away, unwilling to do what Jesus had asked him to do or told him, commanded him to do, then Peter comes to Jesus and he says to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now this morning as I'm speaking and as I'm reading the different passages of Scripture, I want you to think about what I'm saying, what the Lord says in His Word, and I want you to think about uh, the theme of discipleship, the theme of what Jesus had called the rich young man to, the theme of what Peter had said he had given himself to. We have left everything and followed you. And think about these words as we're going through this this morning. Tim just prayed, Tim Wegener just prayed for the Olsons and the Wegeners. And in an external way, in a very physical way, these families are going to be leaving fathers and mothers and houses and lands and familiar places and going to different countries physically leaving them, both of them actually leaving daughters here, physically leaving them here in order to follow Jesus as disciples. Now that's nice. We're glad they're doing that. And it's glad that somebody does that for us, isn't it? Because it'd be awful if we had to do it, wouldn't it? It'd be awful if we had to be leaving people and leaving those things familiar to us in order to follow Jesus. Physically, I mean. Just the physical reality of not being around my friends and not being able to have uh, times and dinners and fun times with the people that I love and that that I really like to be with, that's difficult with my family. That's difficult. I'm glad that the Wegeners and the Olsons are taking care of that for us and that they filled our church's uh, requirements concerning those things. Aren't you glad? Yeah. It doesn't work that way, does it? The reality is that we are all called to do this and that we must do it. I told Stephen I was going to use him as an example this morning. How many of you thought that Stephen's small group is too big? Oh, come on. What if it is? What if Stephen's small group is too big? I say we're standing over here. You know, they love each other. They're pretty comfortable. They're pretty tight. They're pretty close. Ask Stephen. They're pretty happy. But the time's coming pretty soon when some of those people, for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus, will have to leave that small group, leave the people that they're comfortable with physically in order to do God's work. They won't have to leave the city probably, but they'll physically leave proximity to those people. They won't be able to spend so much time eating Seabra's casseroles. Right? 
They're going to have to make their own casseroles and serve them to other people. We have that same call to that external following. We don't belong to this world any more than the Olsons and the Wegeners belong to this world. They are sojourners, exiles, travelers of God looking for another city that God has made for them, and so are we. And so we have the same charge to us to follow. God calls us to physical separation from those things that are familiar and comfortable to us. But He also calls something else. He calls for our hearts. You know, in reality, those families or we could go somewhere else. We could go to another place, but our hearts could still be tied to the, the lusts and the, and the preferences and the offerings of this world. And so we might go to another small group or we might go to Africa or we might go to Budapest, but our hearts would still be tied to those things. And God says, no, that's not acceptable. He says, I want you to put treasure in heaven. Store it up there, not on this earth. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And so he calls us to, to be aliens and strangers and separate ourselves from everything familiar. Sometimes it'll be separation that's physical, but it'll always be separation that's spiritual. Because we're supposed to come out of darkness and be called into uh, the, the marvelous light of God's presence and His countenance looking upon us. And we can't do that if we continue to give ourselves to the fleshly lusts that war against our souls. We can't give our hearts to those things and think that we can have the, the, the presence and the face of God looking on us. And so we have to give ourselves to God and we have to turn away from those comfortable, comfortable lusts. The world is passing away, 1 John 2.17 says, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Recently, my wife Annie was walking in College Mall. And as she was walking through College Mall, she had an epiphany. You know what that is? It's that thing at the end of the sentence. It's when the light bulb comes on above your head. She's walking through College Mall, and she was there, I think, bringing my daughter to get something, bringing Allison to get something, so she's just wandering through the mall, and she suddenly realizes uh, something has happened in her life. Years and years ago, she was one of these mall chicks. Okay? I don't know what you call them. There's got to be a term. What's that? Mall rats? No, she was a mall chick. Okay? And she was, she was thinking about years ago when she worked in the mall in Cincinnati, at a major mall on the north side of Cincinnati at a store called The Limited. And then she worked in another department store in Cincinnati, and she would sell clothes and sell, uh, uh, was it, men's colognes or something? I forget. And... Uh, she realized, she realized, well, she remembered that time, and she remembered that her, and I've asked her if I could tell you all this, and so she's fine with it. She remembered that the, what, what she would do is she'd get her paycheck, and then she'd do what? She'd, she'd go into the stores and buy everything that she had seen in the stores that she had wanted, and so her paycheck was dedicated to buying clothing in the mall. 
basically, or jewelry or whatever. And it occurred to her suddenly that something had happened. She was in the mall killing time that day, and she realized that she had become measurably removed from the values of her youth, that the mall wasn't attractive to her, that she had a, a sobering about the change within herself because suddenly, you know, it was, oh, wow, I'm just not that anymore. God had called her away from those lusts to follow him and to turn her heart toward him. He had, he had realigned the values of her heart to follow him. It's true of all of us. We're all in that place where we have to have ourselves called away from the lusts of this world. But how deep does it go? How far does God call us away from, you know, how far will he go with this to call us away from the things that are familiar, the things that are comfortable? What will he go, how, to what degree will he finally go? And I think this is seen in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14. Verse 26, Jesus is talking to the multitudes and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus realize what he was saying? Well, before you get all upset, let me tell you what the Greek word translated hate here actually means. It actually means hate. That helps a great deal, doesn't it? For a second, we thought that was going to be easy. We know in the scripture that we're commanded to love everyone even our enemies. How can it be that he'll command us to hate our parents? It's a contradiction, isn't it? Hasn't he contradicted himself? He can't. He can't. It is a paradox. It is a paradox. Something that seems contradictory and yet in another sense is exactly true. And that's what Jesus is saying here. What would it look like if Jesus did what he told them to do? What would that look like if Jesus hated his, his mother and his family? What would that look like? You know, we have a picture of it in the Bible. In Matthew 12, verse 46, While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. We want to see you, Jesus. We come over to see you. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, that's dangerous right there. And stretching his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And if you go back one chapter, chapter 11, verse 11, in speaking of John the Baptist, his cousin, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He was really dissing his family, wasn't he? 
It wasn't a warm fuzzy delivered to everybody. It's a good thing his dad didn't live to see that day. And I'm assuming he didn't. What was Jesus doing? He was hating his mother. He commanded us to hate our mothers. He was hating his mother. He prioritized God's kingdom above that which everyone would have expected to be dearest to him. His own mother. The kingdom of God. These are my brothers, my sisters, my mother. Anyone who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than my cousin John. Pretty famous guy, too. We're all acquainted with the phrase, blood is thicker than water. And this phrase actually has origins that date back as far as 1180 A.D. And it has nothing to do with viscosity. Blood is thicker than water. It means that family relations are greater than anything, stronger bonds than any bond. And it probably means, most specifically, that they're stronger than the bonds between one believer and another who've been baptized in water to follow Jesus Christ. So it's a statement that's saying family is even bigger and stronger than any relationship you can have to God. But that's not what God allows. It's only in the context of our absolute allegiance to Him that He commands and powers and releases us to love others. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second commandment is to love everybody else. But if we reverse the order of those commands, we are not able to be disciples of God or lovers of Him because He won't take second. He won't take the number two slot. David's prayer of confession this morning. No other God. He won't be number two. Water must be thicker than blood. Another paradox, but an analogous one. Water must be thicker than blood. King David understood this very well. In Psalm 17, verse 8 and following, he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David didn't love his children. He says the, the wicked love their children. They give their children a big inheritance when they kick off. They love them. That's their whole portion. David said, I'm only satisfied with your face. You're the one I'm satisfied with. He knew his priorities. He was a man after God's heart. He knew his priorities. God first. Nothing but seeing his face. 
I love my wife. Today's my son's birthday. He's 22 on the 22nd. His lucky number, I guess. I love my son. I love his wife. I love my grandson. I love my daughters. And Jesus tells me that I must hate them all. That I must hate them all. And that when I believe that water is thinner than blood, than, thicker than blood, when I believe that water is thicker than blood, when I worship the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul, then I in turn can go to my family and give them my love. But it's love I get from God for them. And I'm free. The paradox of discipleship. The very closest and dearest thing we can have, God will not allow us to have before Him. Behold, we have left everything to follow you. Why are we kept in this world? Jesus, as he's praying for the believers whom God has given him, he says, I have given them your word, John 17, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Leave them there and keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And that certainly includes us. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me a purpose in leaving us here, to sanctify us, to fill us with truth, to give a testimony to the world that God has sent Jesus Christ to save us. We are in the world, but we, no, we are no longer of the world. In the world, but not of the world. You know, think about it. It's a strange thing, way to say it, but my wife Annie, she was in the mall, but she was no longer of the mall. Right? That's the reality of it, spiritually. That's what happened in her life. We think about dramatic conversions of people who were in prostitution or drug addiction or they were thieves and they would steal all the time and suddenly God saves them. What about the people that God saves from them all? He does. It's a lust, it's a sin. And God delivers us from it. Praise His name. He sets us free. He removes our hearts from whatever we are of so that we can be of God. So what are you of? What were you of? Are you of the mall? Are you of entertainments? Are you of NASCAR? Are you of the Colts? Are you of the university? Are you of the opera? Are you of the UAW? Are you of Bloomington South? Are you of Lighthouse Academy? Are you of the Republican Party? Are you of the childless, narcissistic culture that we live in? And on and on and on and on of what we could be of. Are you of God? Are you an alien in this world? A stranger to it? Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Everything. 
What has God promised to us? Well, he's given us wonderful things already. Wonderful gifts. And he's made promises about meeting our needs in this world as we follow him, as we physically leave things and as we spiritually leave things, even unto the point of hating our own relatives so that we can love him supremely. He has given us the power for that and understanding of that. He has given us the, the marvelous light of his own countenance as he's looked on us in forgiveness and as we're able to worship him. What else has he promised to us? You know, I like to swim. Anybody else like to swim? You know what I like about swimming? I get tired of gravity. It's just always pulling on me. Okay? When I get in the water, I like to just lay there. I go on vacation and we get a place with a pool. I like to just lay in the water and float. And let the water take care of things. Right? It's comfortable. Well, God leaves us His promises to comfort and to encourage us. And we are meant to float in the hope that He provides to us in them. And I want us to take a few minutes at the end to talk about, uh, read to you some verses where He gives us His promises for our future. These are lofty themes. Pray that God will give you faith for them. That He will raise you up to believe them. Because it will lift you out of the mire of this place. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. Hebrews 11. Speaking of those who had faith. Verse 13. All these died in faith. All these men of faith listed. They died in faith. Seeing the promises from a distance. They were strangers and exiles on earth, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Every time I hear the recording uh, Jody does of Sweet Rivers of Redeeming Love, you know what I think? I think, how do we ever, how do we ever get comfortable in this world? How do we ever... Enjoy it. We, don't enjoy, we enjoy it because we don't have faith for the themes of what God has provided for us. That's how we enjoy it. But when you hear the words of those songs and the, the promises visualized in the words, you just think, how can I ever do this? Sweet rivers of redeeming love lie just before my eyes. Had I the pinions of a dove... I to those rivers fly. I'd rise superior to my pain. With joy outstrip, outstrip the wind, I'd cross o'er Jordan's stormy waves and leave this world behind. Sweet rivers of redeeming love lie just before my eyes. Do you see it? Do you understand? You might be old and thinking, wow, the rivers are really close. But let me tell you, you can be very young. The sweet rivers are very close. Let me tell you that. They're right there. And if you don't put your eyes on those rivers, then your eyes are going to be on this world, and you're not supposed to be of it. It will be sin. Your heart will be in the wrong place and given to the wrong thing. John 14 do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
We have the promise of being with Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who was completely holy, whose blood could pay the penalty for our sins, the one who loved us that much. We can be with him there in his presence. That's a lofty theme. First Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend with a shout from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. They will meet the Lord in the air. And we shall always be with him. We shall meet them in the clouds and we shall always be with them. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First Corinthians 51, or 1551. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more death. That's a lofty theme. Do you have the faith to believe it? You will be raised with Christ and there'll be no more death. Lastly, Revelation 20 through the end of the book. I'm just going to read certain sections. It starts off with the judgment and the book is opened and anyone whose name was not found written in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Only the disciples of Jesus Christ will enter into the joy that God has prepared. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We will have the presence of God. God. Do you, have you looked at the pictures from the Hubble telescope? Do you ever look at these galaxies that they're taking pictures of zillions of light years away? Do you ever see these things? Have you ever looked at the microscopic pictures as they zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and realize they just can't quite zoom in far enough? Do you know who made all of that? And he's going to be the one we're going to be with. He will be with us. And in that place, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And no longer any death, and no longer any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. This present evil age will be done and gone. Behold, he says, the one who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. The age to come is begun. He goes on and he describes the city. And it says in verse 22 of chapter 21, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, its gates will never be closed. But guess what? There isn't any night. So the gates are never closed. Nothing unclean will be there. And I love chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. No curse. It's gone. 
all of the struggles, aren't you tired of it? Aren't you just tired of it? It's gone. And we will see his face. Do you have faith to that lofty sight? Can you see it? Soak it in. Just lay back and float in it. And if you don't have faith for it this morning, I'm sorry. You need to repent of your sins and you need to push your heart away from the lust in this this world, the familiar things of this world. Because that's the only way you'll see this and that's the only way you'll be able to float in the hope of it. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. I want you to pray with me as Tim comes to take us into the next part of the service. I just want you to pray those words with me if you believe it by faith. I want you to repeat what Peter said with me. We sing songs all the time where we say things that are only true by faith. And this statement is true by faith in our lives. Just pray it with me. Lord Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Repeat it with me. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Amen.